Welcome to Equiosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland, and I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And when Dominique and I get together, it's always a non-stop conversation. We both love talking about horses, and we both have a passion for training. So let's let's head off with a little recap of Dominique of what we've been doing recently. I've been doing a lot of traveling, and I'm just back from a clinic out in California in Half Moon Bay, and it was such a fun clinic. It was really a tremendous clinic. And one of the participants, she used a phrase which I thought was such a good one. She was talking about observational learning. And it was it was a phrase that just sort of stood out for me and made me think about a lot of different ways in which that phrase can be used. So what did she mean by that? Well, what I think what she meant was, she, so in the clinics, we have two levels of participation. So there are people who bring their own horses, and during the clinic, they are working with their horse, and we're doing one-on-one sessions with the horses. And then we also have people who attend without their horses, and the learning occurs in many different ways. So yes, they're watching all the training sessions, but we also do a lot of, when we're doing the skill building, everybody is participating in that and everybody's participating in the discussions. But when you're watching somebody else working a horse, that's observational learning. And so that was one of the things that, I think that was what she was thinking about But there's the observational learning as well that occurs, for example, when we're doing some of the body awareness exercises that are often woven into the clinics. You begin by just standing very quietly with your feet together and you get a baseline of this is how I feel, this is what I'm aware of today in the way that I'm standing. And then we go through a series of movement exercises that are designed to increase the awareness of how you move. And so the observational learning there is very direct learning of what do I feel? So when I'm standing, what am I aware of? What am I observing? Am I observing that there's equal pressure, equal balance in uh, both my left foot and my right foot? Do I feel pressure coming down through my right leg and now my knee is beginning to be a little uncomfortable and actually what I'd love to do is sit down or find a wall to lean against? That's a form of observational learning. Uh And I think it's such an important... Self-observation. Self-observation, mm. yes. So that's one of the places where obser- where that phrase, obser- observational learning, comes into play. When we are, oftentimes I'll have people who say, 
Oh, I have to bring my horse to the clinic. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kinesthetic learner. I'm I'm not a good visual learner. Mm-hmm. And I have to do. I have to do to learn. Right. I have to be doing to learning. Mm-hmm. And I always think it's so interesting how we program ourselves. <laughs> so I would much rather have somebody say, "I'm not a good visual learner yet." That's mm. like that Carol Dweck, the psychologist from Stanford University, and and when she did some of the studies on learning and sharing with people the the concept of neuroplasticity, that that changed their it changed their test scores basically, and that when you start adding in the word yet, mm. uh, you open doors. So if I say to if somebody says, oh. I'm no good in I'm no good in doing math, for example. Well, your brain starts to to believe that. Mm. You know, when you make statements like that, your brain says, "Oh, okay. I I guess I'm no good in math." And you're programming yourself. Yeah. That's so, so true. much better to program possibility. Mm. So I would much, so what Carol Dweck would say is you want to add yet to that. Yeah. I'm I'm not very good in math yet. I'm not very good at knitting yet. Yep. Uh you know, I'm I'm not a good rider yet. And that's true for our animals too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, what are we programming through our words? What are we programming when we make these statements about, well, this is the way I learn? And for our horses, they benefit so much when we learn how to be good visual learners. So one of the things that, one of the skills that I know that I have developed over time is good visual observational skills where I can watch somebody and it's like those, uh, the, the current explanation with, with mirror neurons that you begin to be able to copy some of how that person is moving. We we begin to mirror and mimic some of the person's actions. Like, for example, when you're with a group of people, you'll often find that your speech patterns will begin to alter just slightly to mirror and match the other people in the group. Yes. And we, we do that without even being aware that we're doing it. We start matching when we laugh or how we laugh can can actually change. Mm. And so if we're doing that without really even being aware of it, we can certainly enhance that and become better visual observational learners. And there's that's so useful for our horses because if we have to do to learn, that means that we're doing a lot of things at our equine learner's expense, instead of watching and then trying. You know, I'd like to add something to that, because sometimes you'll have three different people observing, looking at some some training. Yes. And the way they are interpreting what they are seeing can be very different. Yes. I see more stressed horses now than I used to. And 
I've been sometimes in arenas where people are saying, oh, this horse is in a very uh, good mood. He's very energetic. And I'm thinking this horse is super stressed. Yes. So we're looking at the same horse. We're not interpreting what we're looking at the same way. Yes. And... Or we come up, it's the Susan Friedman's, that wonderful phrase, the reification, these stories that we tell. So, for example, this past weekend, I was, it's not horses, but I was watching some llamas being handled. And the llama, this one particular llama, did not want to go forward over an obstacle. So its feet were planted well and truly in the ground. And the handler was pulling with all her strength on the lead rope. And this llama's feet were planted well and truly in the ground. And the explanation was that the llama was being stubborn. Well, I think there were other explanations that we could come to. One easy one would be the llama was scared. Yeah. And... What I always think is I want to tell stories that work in the animal's best interest. And and that's how I've always explained it to people because, you know, we do tell stories. So we, 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 we are coming up with explanations. So let's come up with an explanation that leads to good training outcomes and where safety always comes first and where we are protecting the uh, welfare of the learner. So, for example, if I say to the, that this horse, let's say, that this horse is refusing to go forward over an obstacle, that you've brought him out into a public setting, and this horse is not used to being away from his home barn, so now you've put him in a horse trailer, you've taken him to um, the county fair, you're showing him in a trail class, and the horse has come up to a jump or an obstacle that he's not familiar with. What would be a common trail class obstacle? Uh, plastic, walking over plastic. And the horse has planted his feet, and we're saying he's stubborn. He knows how to go over plastic. He's just being stubborn. Or we say, oh, this horse is afraid. If I say this horse is afraid, what are the choices that I'm going to make? Well, I might take him out of that environment. I might make the obstacle simpler. I might bring a buddy horse out uh, to help him. I might put him back on the trailer and take him home and do more training at home. And, and instead of taking him to the county fair, I might take him down to my friend down the road who has a barn and let him get used to traveling to other locations, but locations that just aren't as overwhelming as the county fair. I'll use some of the techniques that Ken Ramirez shared with us uh, in the webinar on do it differently. You know, at home, I'll every day I'll put something different out in his paddock so that he gets used to the environment changing. I'll do all of those things to really, and, and, I'll, and I'll work on 
teaching him to step on platforms and mats. And then uh, instead of making it a big sheet of plastic, I'll do various training exercises where uh, maybe I, I have a V of plastic and I just gradually make the V closer and closer together the way that Linda Tellington-Joan used, used to teach horses how to walk over plastic. Or, you know, I'll use lots of different techniques so that my horses walk. It gets really cool about walking over any and all sorts of surfaces. And at the end of the day, I will have a horse who is really well-trained, Uh, that can go in lots of different places, not just to the county fair, but to lots of different places that I want this horse to go to. And he'll be able to walk over not just plastic, but uh, ramps and bridges and you name it. He's like, he's got it. He could just walk right over it. And, uh, you know, I'll have all of these benefits because I said my horse is scared and I need to work on the training. But suppose instead I take the other route and I say my horse is just being stubborn. Then what is my answer to that? Well, then I need to get out a whip and smack him forward and show him that being stubborn doesn't work with me. And if I'm wrong and he's really afraid, getting after him like that is is really going to intensify his fear it's like squeezing a balloon. That fear and that ten- tension is going to pop out in other ways. Those are the horses that out of the blue, oh, I never saw it coming, but uh, the rider gets bucked off. There is fallout from that approach or that shut down. Those are the horses that shut down. Yes. But there's fallout from that approach. So, but if I, if I suppose the horse was just being stubborn and I take it home and I do all of this training, then I will also have addressed any of, we'll put stubborn in quotes, what is it that the horse was trying to get by in quotes being stubborn? All of that will have been dealt with, addressed, and whatever was causing that horse to say, no, I'm not going forward with you, will have been dealt with in the training. And so that being stubborn label won't apply. It won't need to be attached. If the horse is afraid and I use the he's just being stubborn label and I get after him, I can do real harm. If the horse is being stubborn, but I treat him as though he's afraid, then he doesn't have any reason to be stubborn anymore. And that label disappears. You know, I'm finding that when we start to use the behavioral language and perspective, it allows us to open up some of the learning we can, we can have access to. What I mean is, and we alluded a little bit to that when we talked about your trip to Europe and the Anya Baran's clinic. Yes. I used to go to clinics or look at trainers train traditionally and hear all kinds of of explanations that were very confusing to me. And part of me just wanted to reject the whole thing. But there's a lot of knowledge in traditional training. 
Yes. A lot of knowledge about the biomechanics of the horse, about all the various disciplines. You don't want to throw that away. You want to use it and add the behavioral perspective to it to make it even better and more scientifically accurate. And I remember once reading a letter that Ken Ramirez wrote. He was getting a new dog for his ranch and had a discussion with the breeder who, of course, had a lot of knowledge about this breed. And it was it's a working breed cattle, um, you know, sheep dog. And it was so interesting because Ken, everything that the the breeder was saying, Ken translated it in the more behavioral scientific perspective and I thought how interesting you know that he would keep all the value and make it even more well for me it's better but to add the scientific perspective and make it more accurate scientifically speaking and so this opens up because this means that now I can go back and I was we just had at my barn we had a very interesting clinic with a very well-known dressage uh, European trainer who studied with Nuno Oliveira, and she really did train with him for many, many years because it seems that a lot of people say they were his yes, students, yes. but she really was a student with him for many, many, many years. And so, of course, this woman, she has a lot of knowledge but it was interesting for me because I could I could take everything that I wanted from it and then I could add the the behavioral perspective to it. And it was very rich, you know, very rich learning. So I find that when we're when we're going to clinics or when we're looking at people work, we can still take a lot from them, even though they may not have exactly the same, you know, they may not come from it, from the same place we're coming. And then we can translate and we can use whatever we need in that and leave the rest. You know, when when um, Michaela was saying, take the what from Anya and take the how from Alex. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And oftentimes it's saying, Okay, I I want to I want to learn how to do a reining horse pattern. So you're going to you're going to need to go to reining horse trainers to look at what does a reining horse spin look like? What does a yeah. what do these maneuvers look like? And then it becomes a question of, well, do I want to teach this to my horse? Is this something that is biomechanically fair for this particular individual? And then I see how they taught it, but are there other ways of teaching it so so I can look at the skills involved, but then develop my own way of getting to them? So yeah, and of interpreting why a horse is doing or not doing something. Because yes. I find a lot of the discrepancies is there. You know, we try to stay with the data and we try to find function of behavior and stay away from labels or constructs or all these words. But but that's where very often, you know, when people start to say, um, you 
you have a horse that's not respecting you or you're not making yourself interesting enough and so you need to add more pressure. The why horses are not doing what they're doing or do this is where we may distance ourselves and how to create motivation in an animal. That's also a place where, you know, we want to create by adding positive reinforcement and some people will use pressure to create the motivation. So um, those are usually the two places where the discrepancy might come in, right. the labels and, you know, how to motivate. But there's still a lot of, of information to keep that is very useful to us. Yes, definitely. So observing for me, is, is not just something you can do with your eyes because your brain is interpreting what you're observing and, the, and two people looking at the same horse will not observe the same thing. No. You no, know, someone will say, this is a joyful, exuberant horse, and I may say, this is a stressed out horse. That's right, because we, we observe through our filters. Yes. That gets back to some of the George Lakoff work, the cognitive, where he's, you know, within the frame, you can see those things that fit within your frame of reference. And everything else is, is, it's as though it doesn't even exist. You you don't have, you can't process it, uh, or you end up pushing against it. So, well, yesterday, I was talking with someone who's not at all in the horse world, and we're trying to make a nuance between correction and discipline. Oh. Yeah, and I thought, ooh, this is a slippery slope. And it reminded me of Lakoff because, you know, I was telling this person, a lot of people feel that correction is a necessary part of education, and I don't. And, and then at some point, I used the word discipline, and he said, well, do you think discipline and corrections are the same? And I thought, hmm. <laughs> This is this is an interesting question <laughs> because yeah. how do people describe what's discipline? You know, discipline can be something very negative for me or it can be something positive where you know you're you're pushing yourself and you're trying yes. to have good habits and healthy habits and that so it's it's kind of a loaded word for me the word discipline so it's always everything is a, it's a question of interpretation and our values at the very core what our values how and how we interpret things and yeah i think the lake of uh, and if if people don't know what we're talking about you wrote uh, an amazing amazing uh blog post or blog posts probably i should say there were probably a few i think it was mainly it was one very long yeah. one. What's it called? Can you re- can you I don't remember, but it would have been the January 2017, I think, blog in my, in the clickercenterblog.com and it it was a very long post and I think it was the only one I put up that month. But you also after that, you made some presentations at various conferences. Yeah, I've I've done some right, I've done some conference presentations using using his work. Yeah, and I think it had a lot of people were very um uh, thought yes. it was very relevant yes. and that it brought something very important yes, to those, the discussion. His work, when when I've presented it, it has definitely triggered many discussions and really resonated with people because basically, sort of not, it's not fair to talk about it this much and then not talk about it. Yeah. If you're a regular listener to these podcasts, 
You know what I'm going to do at this point. I'm going to end the podcast here and we'll continue on next week into our discussion of George Lakoff's work. It's been a while since we've posted any bonus material in the library section of the Equosity website. This week, we've prepared an article for you that features Carol Dweck's work, the Stanford psychologist we talked about in the podcast. We look at what is implied in the word yet and how that changes depending upon whether you have a fixed or a growth mindset. Fixed mindsets can be hard on horses. Growth mindsets lead to training success. You'll find the article in the library section. You can read it there or download the audio file and listen to it just as you do this podcast. If you're already a member of the site, just use the password to enter the library. If you haven't yet subscribed, it's easy to do so. Go to equosity.com and fill out the form. We just need your name and an email address. And do note, we don't share your information with anyone. And we limit any use of your email to announcements about upcoming events. And speaking of which, we have a webinar coming up with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. It's on November 11th, 2018 at 1.30 Eastern Time. You can go to the equosity.com website to register. I hope you'll join us. And until next time, have fun with your training.